It's nine after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. The Trump administration has decided to get the Justice Department Civil Rights Division looking into affirmative action admissions policies at colleges around the country. And the media is having as much a meltdown on this as they are David Perdue's immigration policy. We will get to Senator Perdue's immigration policy here uh, in a minute. But let's delve into this college admission stuff right now. Um, Dictionary.com. Dictionary.com should be a dictionary website, except whoever runs the Dictionary.com Twitter site today uh, decided to come out and define affirmative action, claiming it does not mean discrimination against whites, uh, which is garbage. It does. Affirmative action uh, largely means discrimination against not just white people, but Asians as well. We're supposed to live in a colorblind society, but the left wants us to believe that we have to give priority treatment to uh, women and minorities. The problem is that we've reached a point in this country where it's not good enough to take two people who are equally qualified and say, okay, we're going to give it to the black person instead of the white person. What is happening more and more in colleges around the country in particular is that we're taking two people who are not equal in grades, not equal in background, and the one who has the the background that is uh, less academically rigorous is the one getting the preference. In fact, what we're finding on college campuses, Michigan and elsewhere, is that Asian students are hit hardest. Asian students have a harder and harder time getting particular scholarships in colleges because Asian students tend to be the smartest and from the most stable families. It is increasingly, well, I shouldn't say increasingly, it is difficult in this country to find an Asian household that doesn't have two parents. The two-parent nuclear household is most prominent now in the Asian community and behind that in the white community. Colleges view that as a bad thing. They want to find people from broken homes who aren't doing as well as other people and putting them in the college. And what we're finding more and more is that you put a lot of these kids in the situation where they go to college ahead of people who have a more academically rigorous background and they don't thrive. In fact, they fail. They fall on their face. They have to do remedial lessons. Um, And what happens to them socially a lot of times is they feel like they've been set up to fail and they grow resentful. The Trump administration wants to root this out. There is a lot to be said for allowing academically successful students from poor areas to get ahead. And in fact, I know a lot of people, a lot of conservatives who would give affirmative action for people based on poverty. They're academically successful, academically bright, but they're from a poor area, so they don't get all the opportunities of the rich kids. Their parents don't have the opportunities to give them the opportunities. Uh, Give them a leg up. I know a lot of people who would support that. 
But drawing the battle lines at the color of someone's skin should be anathema to all of us, uh, regardless of who we are, but it's not to the academic liberals. So you've got these situations around the country where some schools have moved to an economic-based affirmative action. There are schools that will give kids with high scores from rural areas, poor areas, you name it, uh, they'll give them a leg up. I don't know that I have a problem with that. When you are, when you take two kids and they have an equal weighted score, equally weighted score, and then you assign a bonus point to the kid who came from the bad neighborhood, from the bad part of town, from the rural area. Uh, to some degree, what you're doing is you're, you know that the other kid, they're not going to necessarily be shut out because of their scores, but you are allowing people from a rural or a poor area who otherwise don't have the opportunities to access those opportunities uh, on the grounds that uh, they may then most likely give back to their community where they came from later in life. And uh, conservatives fight amongst themselves over that issue. Is affirmative action okay if you use an economic-based program and you don't look at race? But the left wants to define people by the color of their skin. And they want to give preferences to people based on the color of their skin. It is far more likely that the black student from a wealthy suburb who has a two-parent nuclear household is going to exceed the performance of the white student from Appalachia whose dad is in jail and mom works three jobs. But what's going to happen if the white student from rural Appalachia from the broken home competes with the successful black student um, who has a two-parent household uh, from the suburbs, colleges are going to give the black student the leg up because of the color of his skin. And I just, I personally have a problem with us looking at the color of someone's skin and deciding that we're going to give that person an advantage because of the color of their skin. The Trump administration agrees with me, and they're looking into it. The Trump administration is looking at targeting funds going to colleges that do this, that, that weight race, uh, that, that ignore other factors. And I think they should. I think it's a good idea. I think it's worth doing. The fact that the New York Times is having a meltdown over this is everything you need to know about it. The New York Times in the media today, they're having a meltdown over a series of other stories as well. The president has signed the bill on Russia sanctions. Can I say this? Russia sanctions. You would never know it from the way the media is talking about it today. It's all Russia, 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 Russia. I, I want to delve into that when we come back. There are a series of stories. We also need to get into David Perdue and Tom Cotton's economic proposal. The White House is pushing it out hard. Stephen Miller has been in front of the cameras today at the White House, blasting back at a media, attacking the White House over this. We'll get into all of that. We also will take your phone calls tonight, 404-872-0750, one 800 WSB Talk. In fact, we could probably be a little more lenient on taking calls tonight because I have been reading my book all day, uh, doing the audiobook for my book uh, that comes out in October, and my throat is sore after, well, already five hours of talking and two more hours to go, so we will do that. When we come back, though, 
David Perdue, Tom Cotton, they have unveiled an immigration policy that will seek to curtail the numbers of people coming into this country legally. It has nothing to do with illegal immigration, everything to do with legal immigration. The left is apoplectic over it. I'll give you the breakdown of what their law would do on the other side of the break. It is 26 after the hour. Let's go to John in Alpharetta. You're going to be up first tonight. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Can I uh, pick your legal mind a little bit? Sure. I, I, From a legal perspective, I don't understand how you can solve racism and discrimination with racism and discrimination. I, it, it seems to, to have embedded logical contradiction. I don't understand how this passes the Supreme Court. And then you have this principle of assumed innocence where you punish people for perhaps what their great-great-grandfathers did. Could, could you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely, John. Um, first, this can pass the Supreme Court because of a bunch of liberals on the Supreme Court. Um, but I, listen, I think it's wrong. And the Supreme Court has given this a pass in the a pass in the past because of historic discrimination in the country. The problem is, I think that people on the left uh, devalue or do not appreciate enough uh, the resentment that this can breed. That you have two people, one of whom is clearly more qualified, who loses a job to a less qualified person because of that person's skin color. I mean, can you imagine the left-wing outrage if a highly qualified black person lost out a job to a less qualified, less educated white person? It would be outrageous. But then the left says, well, we have a history of racial discrimination in this country, and we do. But at what point do we acknowledge we're always going to have levels of discrimination in this country, uh, but the country itself is not racist? There are always going to be racists. There are black people who are racist. There are Hispanic people who are racist, and there are white people who are racist. There will always be racists. But the nation itself is not. The overwhelming majority of people in the country are not. And what we are essentially finding is that there are a lot of people on the left who can't move on. They have built their entire ideological framework around identity politics and racial grievances. And... If we're really honest about it, and I know this makes some people really mad, there are people who profit from this. There are people and organizations who make a lot of money by fanning the flames. And it's both sides. Let's let's not pretend it's just Democrats. Let's not just pretend it's liberals. There are some right-of-center groups out there who fan the flames, who fan the grievances, who pick the grievances, who cherry-pick the grievances, just like there are on the left. People make money off of race in this country, and they can't let it go. And unfortunately for you and me, the people with the biggest bully pulpits on this issue tend to be on the left, and the media views the world in terms of victim and victimizer, and it's always the minority person who's the victim. So the narrative always swings in that favor. The, the, The affirmative action is always treated as a good Never mind that there are victims on the other side who are hurt by it and who grow contemptuous and bitter by being hurt by it when they view themselves as more qualified. And many times they are. 
there's got to be a better way. And I would submit that the better way is to look at income and income inequality instead of race and racial discrimination. Uh, look at economic factors, not skin color. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. We'll be back. I'm Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. Welcome back. So I have done five hours of recording my book today and now doing two hours of radio. My voice feels like what you can imagine it feels like. Uh, So will I be relying more on telephone calls tonight? You betcha. Let's go to Don in Floyd County. Don, how are you? Welcome. Hey, how are you, Eric? Good. I don't want to get your blood pressure up with all the voice issues and all that, but i got to tell you this story. Um, 2013, late 2013, early 2014, I was in law enforcement, and we were told that we had to go to a mandatory EEOC uh, class that was being put on by the Atlanta Bureau uh, supposedly the director of the Atlanta Bureau of Training for EEOC. Uh, I asked a question toward the end of this class uh, after she covered the protected groups and all that. And I said, look, what if we have a sergeant's position and we have applicants for it and we have a black male, a white male, all things are considered equal, it, and I got the X out, <laughs> and she said, you'd promote the black guy. And I said, uh, well, she said, the black guy is who you'd promote. I didn't get to say, except maybe the white guy has five years more tenure, you know, and mm-hmm. a little more experience and a little more training or what. I didn't get to say any of that. Yeah. Funny how... Now, yeah, And here's another thing. This drove me nuts. I couldn't get over this. She had a PowerPoint, and she put on the PowerPoint that she had arrest powers <laughs> given, to, given to her uh, through Washington, you know, to the EEOC. Uh-huh. How does she have arrest powers? <laughs> I have no idea, but, you know, the the federal government gives powers to people that, I mean, would floor you and me. I just, I I, I don't understand it. You know, there is something I I should stop and say, and that is that as well, you know, there is racism in America. And, you know, I, I have told this story before, and I will keep telling it until the day I die. Roland Martin from CNN uh, formerly of CNN, he and I were at CNN together, and we were standing in front of a hotel in Columbia, South Carolina, in our suits, headed off to do a TV hit during the 2012 Republican primary in South Carolina. And I'm standing there right next to him. We're both in suits, and people are trying to give him their car keys and luggage because they think they see a black man in a suit and think he must work at the hotel. I've been in Washington, D.C. before and tried to hail a taxi and one pulled over and a guy just up the block from me. I mean, there was only he and I on the block. It was like six o'clock in the morning. 
He had been trying to hail a taxi, and the taxi driver wouldn't stop for him, would stop for me. And, I mean, I've seen this with my own eyes. Let's not pretend it doesn't happen. But I also think we shouldn't pretend that, that resentment doesn't build up when you have a more qualified, more experienced person getting passed over for something because of the color of his skin. It still happens in both ways. Now, Rhonda and Grayson, I'd like to go to you next. Welcome. I was I was going to say that I don't think that people realize just how prevalent racism still is. Um, I work for an agency, a government agency in HR, and they literally sort the names by ethnicity. So they look at the names of, of uh, that would be typically Nigerian or African-American or Hispanic, and they put them in one pile, and then they put the names that typically might be Caucasian in a different pile, and then they go after that and they decide who they're going to hire. And also, even the officers in this depart- in our department, when you look at the, the level of threat, the African-American man is level one threat. The African-American woman is level two. The Hispanic is level three. The Hispanic woman is level four. And then the lowest threat is a white man. Good grief. And that's just the reality of it. And I'm, this is an agency that I actually work for. I've seen it happen, and I don't think people understand how much it does still occur. Yeah, you know, when I tell people uh, about my encounter, for example, with the taxi in, in Washington on the street corner, and it, one of their first reactions is, well, the, the, the taxi cab driver was black. Uh, uh-huh. So it's like, what, what does that have to do with anything? The, 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 the guy up the street from me, yes, he, he was black, but he couldn't hail a cab, and he was there first. And I really do think that there are people who are vastly more dismissive of it than they should be. But I also, I, I've got to say this, and I really do want to move on to other topics. Um, but let me say this before I do. I think the problem with the left solution of compensating for there being racism in the world or having been past serious racism in the world by giving preferences now to people based on race causes more problems than it's uh, problems than it solves. It breeds resentment. It breeds contempt. It breeds a sense of unfairness. I think you would get, and in fact, the states that have done it, uh, Texas in particular is a good example of this. The states that have used economic qualifications as opposed to race qualifications, by and large, they get the same result. Uh, but they do it with an economic standard. They don't do it with a skin color standard. And I I would submit to you that it's vastly more fair to do that, to draw people who are smart, who are successful, but live in poverty up out of poverty. Uh, and many times it, it does happen to be a minority. Not all times, though. Sometimes it is. Uh, sometimes it's the poor white kid in Appalachia. Sometimes it's the poor black kid in the inner city. But by doing it on an economic basis, it strikes me as a lot more fair in a country that has dealt with past racism than saying, well, we're going to fix this by being racist in the opposite direction. Y'all, we got a ton of people who want to keep talking about the Supreme of Action stuff, but there's so much other news. I've got to move on. My apologies. Um, I also want to remind you, if you want to sign up for the daily email I send out in the mornings, you can text WSB to 444-999. When we come back, I want to break down David Perdue and Tom Cotton's immigration plan. The president has embraced it. 
this is the first time I've seen Stephen Miller out on stage in a while. Uh, the president really likes the proposal, which would cut legal immigration into the United States. Uh, Fortune 500 companies are rather upset with the proposal. I'll break it down for you. And we got to get into the Russia obsession with the media. There are a series of stories out today that highlight just how far off the rails the media really has gone with the Russia stuff uh, that I want to spend time on. Before we conclude this hour, though, I, I got to tell you, I am spending the rest of this week finishing the audio version of Before You Wake. And I'm going back through today. Uh, talk about an emotional roller coaster reading back through this book I wrote to my kids. It comes out October 3rd. It is also includes the cookbook you guys have been wanting me to do. Uh, so if you want all the famous favorite recipes, including the gumbo and cinnamon rolls and whatnot, you can text the word WAKE to 444-999, WAKE, W-A-K-E, to 444-999. You can pre-order the book. I'll shoot you back links to Amazon and Barnes & Noble. When we come back, David Perdue and Tom Cotton's immigration plan. It is nine after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. If you want to subscribe to the daily email, text WSB to 444-999. You will get it in your inbox every morning uh, before you head to the office. The president is considering a plan from David Perdue and Tom Cotton to reduce legal immigration into the country. Um, and this is a very, very, very important distinction here. This, this plan has nothing to do with illegal immigration, everything to do with legal immigration. The outlines of the plan are pretty straightforward. We have had for the longest time in this country an immigration lottery where roughly 100-some-odd thousand people a year can come into this country by winning an immigration lottery. Purdue and Cotton would cut that number in half, by and large. We also allow in uh, about 110,000 refugees every year into this country. They would, all, they would cut that to about 50,000. So 50,000 legal through lottery, 50,000 uh, legal through refugee, and then another 50,000 uh, legal through jobs. And essentially, what they're gambling on is that there are plenty of skilled workers in the United States, and Fortune 500 companies would much rather hire people from overseas who they can bring here cheaply than hire Americans who they may have to pay more money. And this combat that is very populist, uh, largely protectionist, the Fortune 500 opposes it, and there are many ways, uh, there are many, many senators and congressmen who will oppose this. I mean, essentially, you're going to have most of the Democrats in the Senate oppose this, and you're going to have most of the Republican members of the Gang of Eight oppose this. You're going to have Rubio oppose it. You're going to have McCain oppose it. Uh, you're probably, go who else? You probably have Jeff Flake oppose it. Uh, John Corden probably oppose it. So, I mean, it's probably not going anywhere. The White House had a big to-do about it today, a big release, because they're trying to help it gain some momentum in Congress. They know it's popular with the base. There is a problem, though. 
It is a problem Republicans don't like to talk about, but it is a problem. In a number of states, Colorado being one, Washington being another, California being another, Alaska being another, Hawaii about to be one, Virginia about to be one. They're having a hard time finding employees who can pass a drug test. And then in the Rust Belt, the opioid crisis has gotten so far out of hand. They're having a hard time finding people to pass drug tests. And when you're dealing with manufacturing jobs, you got to have people who can pass the drug test. A number of prominent employers in Ohio and Pennsylvania, in Michigan and Indiana, are moving jobs overseas because they can't find Americans to work who don't have some sort of drug and alcohol addiction problem. There are underlying non-economic problems that have to be fixed to fix this problem, and we stand the risk of chasing away American businesses from the United States by doing things like this. And I know that's not a popular sentiment right now in the country. But if we can't get Americans to clean up their act, we're going to see American companies go where they can find a more stable uh, supply of workers. I mean, for example, in Colorado right now, there's a nursing shortage. You know why? Because the people who should otherwise be qualified for nurses, the the 20-something millennials who went in that direction in college, they're out smoking weed at night, and so they can't pass the drug test that they have to pass to be able to be a nurse. So there's a nursing shortage in Colorado solely because of potheads. Think about that one for a moment. 14 after the hour. Tom Cotton has this quote uh, today from the White House. For some people, they may think that America's traditional immigration system is a symbol of America's virtue and generosity. I think it's a symbol that we're not committed to working class Americans, and we need to change that. Well, yes, we do need to commit to America's working class, and Democrats, by and large, are the ones who gave up on them, not Republicans. But there are also high-skilled jobs out there that we're having a hard time finding American workers do. And frankly, there are jobs that Americans won't do. At least jobs they won't do at a certain price point that an immigrant will do. And that, again, is part of the problem. I mean, if you guys are willing to pay uh, $30, $40 for your avocado toast, please tell me none of you eat avocado toast, by the way. Please, please. Don't be a hipster. Just let's 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 scale this back and do thirty, forty dollars for your avocado. Well, then I'm you probably could find Americans to go out and harvest avocados, but you're gonna have to pay them a very high wage rate to do it. Uh, you don't necessarily have to pay a migrant the same wage. That is part of the problem. And you know, overarchingly, there's a bigger issue here, and it's part of my frustration with Washington today. This really is a more complex problem than people think. And there are very many more balances that have to be made. There are reasons why it looks like uh, Washington has given up on the American working class. And the Democrats, again, I I would submit to you, Democrats by and large have. They've given up on blue-collar white voters. But one of the reasons is the opioid crisis. And thus far, no one in Congress really has a comprehensive plan to deal with that issue. 
And unless you're going to deal with that drug and alcohol addiction issue, you're you're going to have underlying issues still. You know, so just as a random tangent, well, it's not random. It's actually directly related to this. I was, I'm doing the audiobook version of my book, and I'm having to read out loud chapters of the book that I wrote months ago, some parts of which I had forgotten. And one of the parts I had to read today was about Sherry. Sherry was my last client as a lawyer. Sherry was an indigent criminal defendant who had a drug and alcohol problem, who had taken to prostituting herself to get her drugs and alcohol. Ultimately wound up stealing from a family member who got her thrown in jail and was able to work with the judge and the district attorney and me to not send her off to prison, but keep her in jail for six months where she could get drug and alcohol treatment. And ultimately, she um, she wound up dying. She got hepatitis from all her drug abuse and her liver shut down and she died. I was at my last act as a lawyer was to get Sherry out of jail so that she could die at home. And she died at Christmas, uh, back in 2005, 2006. And there are a lot of people out there like that. My friend, Martha Zoller, by the way, just texted me. Uh, and she says that the raise act, it's about green cards and uh, not visas for agriculture. So good. No $40 agricultures. Um, but yeah, the, the opioid crisis, she agrees that that's something that that's got to be dealt with in this country. And there's an underlying issue with working class Americans in this country that that has got to be dealt with. Uh, you know, as a random aside, though, I, I got to say, I am impressed and proud of David Perdue taking leadership on this issue. Um, a, a, you know, I didn't support David Perdue in his election. Uh, I was highly skeptical of him and, and did not think he was going to be the conservative he claimed to be. And he's been uh, vastly better than I could have ever hoped for. And it is commendable, I think, to see a Georgia senator take the lead on something like this. We haven't seen Georgia senators, uh, no disrespect intended to Saxby Chambliss or um, Johnny Isaacson or, or anyone else. Um, but it's really been, well, Coverdale, Sam Nunn Day since we've seen a major issue, major issue of national import like this being taken on by one of Georgia's senators. And I think it is to David Perdue's credit, uh, having been a CEO uh, in a major industry, and he understands the intricacies of this, and he does understand balancing the needs of Fortune 500 companies and the needs of green card holders and the desires of people to come in. Uh, there are a lot of people in Congress who want to make this issue a populist issue or a liberal issue or a conservative issue, and having his ability, I think, as a former CEO to recognize businesses do have legitimate concerns and legitimate needs, and, and they do have real desire to bring in skilled workers, but also there are abuses to the system. Being able to balance that out, I think is, I hope the Senate seriously considers this, uh, and it's nice to see one of Georgia's senators taking the lead on something like this. It is 26 after the hour. Y'all, it is the summer sale for Mattress Firm right now, and they do have an incredible selection of mattresses, and not just any mattresses. They've got the mattresses that don't trap your body heat at night. 
Uh, you know, so doing my book this week, I have been having to stay at a hotel and I gotta tell you the, the hotel I normally stay at, I love, but I don't know why they can't get the air conditioner to actually cool down the room. I'm staying at a different place this time and the room actually gets cold. I have got to sleep, uh, in a cold room and mattress firm at least recognizes that there are sometimes you need a mattress that isn't going to trap your body heat and they've got a big selection of them uh, they got a great selection of them uh, whether it's from beauty rest or serta they got amazing new mattress technology out there and i do mean technology they spend a lot of time and energy in the science of developing these things uh, to make sure that body heat isn't trapped so if you want a cool night's sleep, if you want a great deal on getting a better night's sleep, I highly encourage you to go into Mattress Firm. There are plenty of locations around the metro Atlanta area. You can go in, check out the mattresses they have, uh, give them a trial run. Remember, with Mattress Firm, you can take a mattress home, sleep on it up to 120 nights. If you're not satisfied, in most cases, you can take it back for a small processing fee, get a different mattress. So you got nothing to lose by going into Mattress Firm and getting a better night's sleep. Uh, back to the phones we go. Steve, incoming. You are next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. Sure. Uh, I'm a forensic business analyst, and I'm all over the place uh, with regards to uh, both domestic and foreign labor. Um, studied it for 20, 30 years, something like that. But your points are well taken. However, um, one, of the, one of the problems is, is when you bring H-1Bs, for example, into the country, their cultural gap their, their working cultural gap here is huge. And, and what I mean is, let's just say in the manufacturing sector, you know, 67,500 buys uh, an, engineer, an engineering person here in the United States and 42,700 and change buys something from offshore. Mm -hmm. um, the difference is, is that these people come here and are dysfunctional. And companies find this out pronto. And what happens is a lot of these H-1Bs end up stranded or sent back or whatever. And uh, that's a problem because they educate themselves the wrong way, thinking they'll save money. These people will function in a way they think that meets their product plan or their manufacturing plan. And uh, so that's, that's a huge You know, deal. Steve, I'm glad you raised that point because it is a, a very serious and real issue. You know, and I, I, I've got two just great examples of this. You know, I grew up overseas, and my dad was a production foreman for an oil platform in the Persian Gulf. And he actually had to give a guy time off to yeah. go home and kill his sister. Because oh, no. she had dishonored the family. No uh, way. Yeah, totally. He he actually had, in an Arab country, and he wow. had he had to do this. And yes, <laughs> bizarre stories like this. Yes, that the cultural inability to adapt is something. Steve, I'm glad you raised that point because you were totally right. And there are uh, stories abound, and I've got a pile of them from my dad's time as a production foreman in the Middle East on an American oil platform. It is 6.39. I'm Eric Erickson. This is WSB. I want to read you just a few headlines. This is from the Politico. Tillerson spurns $80 million to counter ISIS, Russian propaganda. Headline number one. Uh, uh, headline number two. Trump has said to add concerns in signing Russia sanctions law. 
Headline number three. Trump signs Russia sanctions bill, but lays out his concerns. Now, I'm noticing this trend in the media that anything and everything they can possibly tie to Russia, they are. Like, for example, the Tillerson story. So Rex Tillerson knows the budget of the State Department is getting cut. So Rex Tillerson does not want to spend money on countering Russia propag- Russian propaganda because he thinks uh, he needs he's going to need to show Congress he's responsible with his money. There's no the money's not going to do any good. Um, the money goes away in September, and he's hoping he'll be able to get that money redirected back to him uh, in places that he needs it. But Russia, 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 Russia. The president signed the Russian sanctions bill. You would never know that the president signed the Russian sanctions bill, except for the fact that, well, the president signed it. I mean, the media would rather you think he didn't sign it. The media would rather you think he vetoed it. They want you to know he signed a signing statement saying he thinks it's unconstitutional. Why did he sign it? Well, if you actually read the signing statement, the president doesn't think the legislation is unconstitutional. The president has constitutional concerns about a couple sections of the legislation. I mean, I've been watching the news coverage this afternoon after I got out of the recording studio, and the media is playing up the fact that the president signed something the president thought was unconstitutional, and he did no such thing. The president expressed his concerns about the constitutionality of some provisions, but otherwise he let the bill go through. He signed it. He didn't use any sort of line-item veto. He didn't even suggest it. And by the way, there were constitutional concerns about the legislation. Can the Congress restrict the president from doing certain things with foreign policy powers that Congress did in the legislation? Well, the president signed it. He just raised the concern. He's not sure that it's constitutional. But all of these stories, they're just Russia, 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 Russia. Everything that uh, the the media can possibly tie to Russia, the media is tying to Russia. It's starting to get really tiring, honestly. There's no evidence of illegality. There may be some evidence of collusion, but it's not illegal collusion. There's really no evidence Russia stole the election. And yet the media is fundamentally obsessed with the story and fundamentally convinced that Russia stole the election. And so they're trying to tie every Trump story imaginable to Russia. Uh, You just, you watch the matter, watch the news tomorrow. Watch the news for the next 24 hours. And you're just going to hear story after story after story. And they're all going to find some way to work Russia into the story, no matter how tangential Russia is to the story. You know, even the immigration situation with um, with David Perdue and Tom Cotton, there are several stories out there trying to play up a Russia angle. It's embarrassing that the media would do this, and yet they are. You know, there's another story out there, and this is, keep in mind all of the stories about the surge of support of Democrats to take back Congress. Keep that in mind. And now I want to read you another story. This is from The Atlantic, from James Hamblin. 
if everyone ate beans instead of beef, with one dietary change, the U.S. could almost meet greenhouse gas emission goals. <laughs> wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. If we all ate beans, we could meet greenhouse gas emissions? I, I thought methane was a global warming. I mean, cow farts and cow belches are If we ate more beans, we would poot more. We would have more. We would have more farts. We would release more gas. We would be gas gaseous animals. I, I, wow! So eco anxiety is an emerging condition. Named in 2011, the American Psychological Association recently described it as the dread and helplessness that comes with watching the slow and seemingly irrevocable impacts of climate change unfold and worrying about the future for oneself, children, and later generations. It's not a formal diagnosis. Anxiety is traditionally defined by an outsized stress response to a given stimulus. In this case, the stimulus is real, as are the deleterious effects of stress on the body. And so they want you to become a vegetarian. Y'all, this is why I'm just not sure Democrats are going to have a, a tidal wave of support next year. When they go out there with a straight face and tell you that you need to become a vegetarian and they need the government to pressure you to become a vegetarian, I just don't think so. I mean, listen, as I said the other day, there is plenty of polling out there to show that the public doesn't necessarily care for the president. The president has the highest disapproval rating of any president at this time in his tenure. But just because the American public doesn't care for him doesn't mean they like the Democrats. They may not care for him, but it's looking increasingly like they actually hate the Democrats. They're disgusted by what would come with social justice warriors in charge of Congress. Well, here's some breaking news for you. Mark Zuckerberg has just hired Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton's pollster, Joel Biddenson. He's going to advise the philanthropy efforts for Zuckerberg's uh, foundation. Uh, so Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan, they've got a foundation. Uh, and so they've hired Benenson. He's a former top advisor to President Obama and the chief strategist to Hillary Clinton in 2016. But listen to this. Listen to this. This is the important part. In January, Zuckerberg hired David Pluff, campaign manager for Obama's 2008 presidential run. Ken Melman, who ran Bush's 2004 re-election campaign, is on the board of the foundation. Amy Dudley, communications advisor to Tim Kaine, she's working with them. Uh, just a laundry list of political consultants coming on board. They've been touring Iowa and other states. I, I just, part of me though, I'm not sure that Zuckerberg is that he wants to run for president. And I've talked to several people who are familiar with his thinking. Uh, who who work for Facebook, sit on Facebook's board, and what they tell and listen, I, I still there there may be a wink wink nod nod about him running for president, but what they say is Zuckerberg is mindful that there are an increasing number of people in this country who are suspicious of Facebook. Many of those people are in the heartland. Many of those people want nothing to do with Facebook, and he's trying to understand them uh, to see what he can do to draw them into Facebook. Still sounds like he's running for president, doesn't it? Hiring all these people, I don't. He would be. 
He would be the youngest presidential can- candidate. It, it, could he even get through a Democratic Party process? I don't know that he could. He's 33 now. you got to be 35 to run for president. By 2020, he would be. I just, I'm, I don't see it. Uh, I think he could be easily stereotyped as a as a novice, uh, upstart, rich kid from Silicon Valley trying to buy his way into office. Uh, and I think the president could play off him. Uh, he wants to run against Donald Trump. I just, or maybe he wants to run a third party, structure a third party. Maybe he does. I don't know. Now, it would be interesting if he wanted to fund a third party in this country. I really do believe the country is ripe for a third party. I really do think so. I think the Democratic and the Republican Party are both stagnant. They're both out of ideas. And frankly, they could both use some competition from someone else. And I mean, Donald Trump has to some degree served that purpose. But now as the the head of the Republican Party, he owns that party. And that party is still stagnant and out out of ideas. One reason he could take control of it, because it had no ideas left. We'll see.